And now I would like to introduce Mr. Mircea Joano, Deputy Secretary General of NATO and founding president of Aspen Institute Romania, and Edward Luce, U.S. National Editor and Columnist for Financial Times. Thank you so much for that introduction and um, for inviting me to hold this important conversation with Mircea Joana, who obviously needs no introduction to a Romanian audience. Um, but for those who, very few, don't know, he's the Deputy Secretary General. He's a big figure in Romania, a big figure in Brussels, um, and a very important person to have this conversation with. Now, I know we're meant to talk about the, the new European security architecture, and I will get on to that. Um, but I want to pick up first on some of the things that Secretary General Stoltenberg was talking about. Um, most immediately, the situation in Ukraine. Now, seven uh, NATO foreign ministers, who are here now, I guess, came via Kyiv, spoke to President Zelensky, and heard a very clear message from the Ukrainians, which is they are facing a dark winter. They are facing a winter without light, where you have to operate with, by torchlight in hospitals, um, and uh, where people might face freezing conditions. Um, the supply of air defense uh, material and weaponry from NATO countries is clearly hugely important, but we're not equipped even now for this kind of situation. We weren't expecting this kind of situation um, in terms of our industrial production capacity. What is NATO doing and what are its members doing to get up to the productive capacity to be able to defend Ukraine, give Ukraine the ability to defend itself this winter and beyond. No, thank you, Luz. Thank you for, for, for being here. I would like to thank my Aspen and GMF friends for organizing yet another great event. Ambassador Smith, all dear friends. Um, you know, you, you, you've, you've listened to the Secretary General how passionate is uh, about freedom, uh, about values and about the right of sovereign nations to choose their freedom and their future. And will stay with Ukraine as long as it takes. This country, the people of Ukraine, the military of Ukraine, the leaders of Ukraine deserve our support and uh, will continue to be doing that. And that's why in Bucharest, I'm very proud that my home city is hosting uh, another foreign minister's meeting and also the fact that we'll have on the margins uh, of the ministerial, not only this great event here, but also a G7 plus meeting, mm -hmm. where uh, we'll have, of course, we thank our German allies because they hold the presence of the G7, World Bank, EBRD, many nations that are donors to Ukraine. So what NATO does is, number one, to continue to support Ukraine uh, on, with non-lethal aid. That's what NATO does as an organization. We want to make sure that there is no risk of escalation between NATO and Russia. NATO allies and many partners, you listen to the SecGen saying that from Australia and New Zealand, almost 50 nations are supporting uh, Ukraine in a process led by Secretary Austin, which takes place in, in a very rhythmic and very clear way. On defense, of course, we are giving NATO allies and partners uh, with a sense of urgency and offer and demand from Ukrainians to us most of the things that they need. We're also learning lessons from the fact that our own stockpiles in NATO countries are starting to get lower. Not only the Russian ones, which are very low, but also ours. 
So now there is a call from industry, and that's what we in NATO do. And NATO is the only organization where industry can have clarity on the demand, not for one year, not for six months, but for one decade at least. We call this the NATO defense planning process, which is now moving into higher gears. Secretary General had a, a, a great meeting with CEOs of industry from all over the alliance. And I hope to have also industry from newer members of the alliance, because this has to be more evenly distributed across, across uh, our, our NATO countries and more jobs everywhere. But when we say that, let's say, Romania will be 2.5% of GDP for defense, and then we have clarity uh, on, in Vilnius, there will be a new defense pledge in NATO after the Wales one in 2014, we'll have a new defense pledge. And industry will know, through the needs of each country, what needs to be done, what kind of procurement, what kind of stockpiles for us, and of course to help Ukraine more. So NATO is the only place where all allies, 32 soon we hope, will have clarity on demand from industry. And industry will be ramping up, they will hire more people, they go to the banks, get credits, in a sense, in a sense of coherence and predictability. Meanwhile, we'll help Ukraine, literally, but Ukraine also needs lots of economic support, they need generators for, for this, uh, this barbaric uh, war that R Russia is starting against civilians. And, of course, humanitarian support, uh, because there are many people displaced. Uh, we expect more, more migration from Ukraine. So the idea is that not only NATO, EU, G7, all of us, and America's leadership in this is, 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 is very, very important to make sure that on defense, on economic, on macroeconomic, and on humanitarian, we have a clear picture what Ukraine needs, and this is what we do. And Bucharest is one of the places where we'll, again, re-energize our community. And, 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 I mean, just to be absolutely clear, companies that are going to produce weapons, companies that are going to produce ammunition, missiles for, for um, air defense, they need some kind of time horizon, like you get with vaccine production. We will buy from you for five years, whatever it might be, in order to ramp up. You're doing that, and you're doing that at the speed your member countries are doing that at the speed that's going to be necessary for this winter? We have to make sure that this winter, but also next winter, and next year, and next year, is not only about Ukraine, it's also about us. Mm -hmm. So we have to do a better job for our own stockpiles. Because there is a new reality in Europe, speaking of a world in flux and a European architecture, there is a new reality of deterrence and defense in Europe. So we need clarity, not only industry, but governments and citizens need to have clarity about the needs we have. And this is something that we, we are doing. I think we organized, Julie, three or four meetings uh, in NATO with the people in the Ministries of Defense coordinating procurement. Mm -hmm. And we are doing this in a very steady, determined way. And not to, 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 to replicate the spike of the COVID when there was a need, big surge in demand, then the demand uh, uh, got flatter. We want to make sure that we have at least for one decade clarity, and, and clarity brings predictability, brings production, brings uh, real stuff, and brings return on investment as well. Okay, um, so earlier this month we had a, a hairy moment in Poland where um, initially it, it looked like there might have been a Russian missile, lateral expansion to Poland. Then with, I think, very calm Polish and NATO investigation, it was discovered it was probably an S-300, Soviet-era S-300 from Ukraine. Um, but it reminded us of the dangers of expansion of this war to NATO territory. 
Stoltenberg talked a little bit just now about um, what Romania, you've had an exercise recently, a multi-nation exercise, but you've got a lot of countries bordering Ukraine, NATO members bordering Ukraine. Um, what are you doing in terms of preparation for that kind of very scary escalation scenario uh, amongst, amongst yourselves, but also in terms of communicating to Russia? We do every single day, 24-7, every single day in NATO. We do three things together as we speak. Clear, credible, communicable, and, and, and self-evident, strong deterrence and defense for allies. There is absolutely no, no interrogation mark to Russia or to anyone else that we stand ready as an alliance to defend every square inch of NATO soil. We do this every day. Our military commanders, our political leaders, us in NATO, we do that. So communicating strong, credible, operational deterrence and defense. That's number one. Secondly, we'll continue to support Ukraine. This is an obligation that we have towards another democracy and a sovereign nation that deserves and has earned more than probably anyone else the right to, this, to decide on its own future. And third, at the same time, is to avoid escalation between NATO and Russia, because that's something we do every day. I would like to thank our Polish allies. I would like to thank our American allies. And I will also have to praise NATO, my organization, for the very determined but calm and deliberate way in which we tr treated that incident. It does lots of emotion in the media, lots of comments. Article 5, not. No. We are taking things very seriously. We strengthen our deterrence and defense. We'll help Ukraine and avoid escalation. The world doesn't need another war between NATO and Russia. So that's what NATO does every day. Secretary General, myself, all of us, the ambassadors, and we are doing this job simultaneously 24-7. Uh, that's our job. Now, I, I promise the next question after this, I'm going to get on to the new European security architecture. Um, we're getting there anyway. We're getting there no, anyway. Um, uh, well, good. Um, but, let, but it would be remiss of me as a journalist, sitting here in Bucharest at a NATO foreign me minister's meeting, not to look back at the 2008 Bucharest NATO summit, in which Georgia and Ukraine were promised membership, but at some very vague future unspecified date, arguably the worst of both worlds, makes them vulnerable in an intervening period um, that um, isn't specified. Was that a mistake? I'm coming from Romania. <laughs> I lived half of my life in communism. I was the youngest ambassador ever to go frightened and not knowing exactly why I was sent to Washington as a young ambassador of my country. Nobody was speaking about NATO enlargement. We didn't know if America would decide to enlarge NATO or not. There was a big discussion, Julie, remember, what to do. And I started, and all my nations started, and all our nations from former communist Europe started to say, we want in NATO because it's where we belong. The Iron Curtain separated my country and half of Europe into half a century of misery and dictatorship. We wanted to go back to our family. That's what NATO is. So you come to a Romanian and in Bucharest have to say that other nations, because of geography, is probably more exposed, should be denied the same right, like Germany and France and the UK and Norway, 
a beautiful country where my boss is coming from. Why? On which, on which ground? So I cannot judge if the decision in 2008 uh, uh, was, uh, you know, uh, fully cooked. But I can say one thing, that in the Washington Treaty, our founding document, open-door policy is enshrined and will stay with us as long as we'll exist in an alliance. And of course, as our geography allows. So I think that it was a decision to give any sovereign nation in Europe the chance to dream. And also, I remember that NATO enlargement also triggered EU enlargement. It did. Until now, there is no single EU enlargement which has not been precedented by a NATO enlargement. Why? Because we bring security and predictability. And then European Union, I also work hard to get in my country to the EU. So we should tell Ukraine and Georgia and Bosnia and the Western Balkans and whoever that if they're ready and we are ready, they would come and be with us. And that's, I think, the spirit of Bucharest. We had the spirit of Prague yesterday. Uh, but the spirit of Bucharest is that every single sovereign nation has the right to dream about its future and to fight for its future and be where we decide to belong to. We belong to the West. Ukraine belongs to the West. Russia divorced itself from civilized Europe. Russia divorced itself from civilized Europe. Ukraine will be part of a civilized Europe, and this is what we are doing. In which shape and form, in which timetable, I do not know. It's beyond my pay, my pay grade. But I know they will be with us, part of a democratic, prosperous, and, and a self-confident uh, civilized Europe. That's where Ukraine belongs to, where Moldova belongs to. And all the nations that are taking that path belong to. That's the belief. That's the spirit of Bucharest. And in the spirit of, of what you've just said, I mean, if, if I were Georgian or Moldovan, I would want to join NATO pretty quickly. Um, uh, and I presume that conversation is going to keep arising in the years ahead. And this does overlap with the new European security architecture. Um, how realistic is it that, that they, their applications are submitted and accepted within a reasonable time frame? Listen, the Republic of Moldova, which is very dear to Romania and to us, um, for the first time ever, a foreign minister of the Republic of Moldova attends a NATO foreign minister's meeting. First time ever. Right. They're a neutral country. We respect that. In constitution, they say it's a neutral country. But when we meet President Maya Sandu, she's a formidable leader. Formidable leader. And in very difficult circumstances, you see the blackmail on energy. You see that uh, energy grid is also collapsing because of the Ukraine war. They are coming here to ask to join NATO. They are here to say... They, they need help to, to cross a very difficult situation. And NATO does its part. Moldova is a joint part of NATO and the European Union. And they've been given Moldova, the Republic of Moldova, a European perspective, like Ukraine and also like Georgia. So I do believe that uh, any nation should decide its own path. Moldova today is a neutral country. Respect that. But Maya Santo told us when we met last, and I think she met Secretary General, uh, that they don't see neutrality as weakness. Neutrality changes in Europe. Finland and Sweden decided after decades and centuries of neutrality to switch gears because of Russia, and they're joining NATO. 
Switzerland has a very dynamic neutrality with very strong armed forces. So there are many ways in this European architecture to have, uh, to have this kind of thing. But European architecture is not only about security. It's a new economic model which is happening. The divorce of Russia from civilized Europe and decoupling from Russian energy would be bringing a new energy reality, would be bringing new supply chain uh, reality, would be bringing security and economics go together. And in NATO, we say the societal resilience is the first line of defense. Yes, we have strong defense and deterrence. We talked to Elliot and our friends from Aspen US. The democracy and trust, these are things that are also important. So in a way, the definition of security, uh, Ed, is of course about traditional deterrence and defense, but there are many facets, cyber, space, disinformation, resilience, hybrid warfare. So this is where NATO is not the only institution addressing these things, but we are the biggest organization addressing these things, and 32 allies, that's, that's a lot of countries. Yeah, I promised I was going to start asking explicit questions about the new Euro European security. He'll not, not ask the question. He's here's the first. Many times. No, no, this is actually an explicit one. Uh, three, four years ago, whenever it was, uh, we had a French president, uh, Macron, describing NATO as brain dead. Now it's clearly not brain dead. Um, partly, I guess, because of Putin, because of his actions. Partly also because we have a different US president who is more explicitly enthusiastic about NATO. Um, but these are both non-European actors. As you say, Russia has excluded itself from European civilization, and America is America. Um, what is it that Europe can do to create the European security architecture? NATO is in great health. Um, we also had difficult moments. The Suez Canal crisis, where I was not born. So this is not always ideal situations. But there is a need, is a common threat, we come together. Across the political families, across generations. And the usefulness of NATO is now more clear than ever. America needs its allies in Europe and all over the world. Secretary General, when he was invited to speak in, in front of a joint session of U.S. Congress, he said there, and I think it's probably the most memorable phrase uh, of, of this great Secretary General that we have, it's good to have friends. America needs its friends in Europe. America needs its friends and treaty allies or non-NATO allies all over the world. Because this, this is the strength that democracies and people sharing the same values and interests uh, do have together. Yes, Europe should do more. And Europe should do it in a way that will be strengthening, speaking of the EU. The EU is a very important political project. I like the project, and I invested myself a lot in this project. Just to make sure that willing to strengthen the EU, we also strengthen NATO. There is a way to be convergent. And I think that what we're seeing now with more defense spending, uh, with more synergies between NATO and the EU, uh, I read the recent French new national security strategy. There's a big chapter on NATO as the indispensable linchpin of European security. This is self-evident to everyone. So this is where I'm very confident that irrespective of political cycles, there's democracies, irrespective of the differences between politicians and, and ideologies, there is a clear realization that we need each other more than ever. The world is in flux. 
Crisis will continue to come. That's the most transformative part of human history. I'm chairing on behalf of the SecGen, the innovation coordinator. Look at AI. Quantum is coming in the next few years. Biotech is coming. This is a monumental transformation of the world. In these moments, we need each other more than ever. America needs allies. European allies needs America and Canada. And we need to work also with the rest of the world. That will be my comment. It's not only us. In Bucharest today, we'll have the 32 soon-to-be allies. We are still more than 50% of global GDP. We are most, uh, more than 50% of total defense spending in the world. But if you look to the G20 meeting in Bali just the other day, there are other countries that are coming, the Indias of the world, the Egypts of the world, Nigerias of the world, Brazils and others. So I think we also have, because partnerships for NATO are very important, we have to do a much better job to engaging also the other players. And I'm happy that, again, the Aspen Institute, my, my first and eternal love, uh, we are also, uh, Elliot, moving into other, into other places. So yes, we have to stay strong as democracies, and we have to engage with the rest of the world. Because we all need stability and predictability. War is not what we are looking for. We are a defensive alliance. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes moments like this of huge crisis and drama and tragedy and suffering can lead the world to various options. We've seen it before in history. It can go like the meeting between FDR and Winston Churchill at the beginning of the Second World War in Canada, in Newfoundland, when they, them and their great teams, our predecessors in a way, they've written the Atlantic Charter. That is the foundation, the intellectual, political, and ideological foundation of the world order, which was enshrined in the UN Charter, in the World Bank, in NATO, and the European Union. I think the time is, has come for us to revisit and have again a vision for the, for the world, because we need each other. We need peace, we need human dignity, we need liberty, we need freedom. And I think these are universal values. And I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong, it's not the spirit of Bucharest, it's the spirit of NATO, uh, that, that we believe that we are uh, in a very complex moment, but I think we have uh, the stamina, the energy, and imagination to have a security and economic and democratic uh, reality that will enable us to move forward. I'm glad you mentioned the Atlantic Charter and Bali um, because uh, one of the issues that's going to arise in the next two days, but I think increasingly across the Atlantic, is American encouragement, even pressure on Europe and on NATO to step up more in terms of China. And it's fa in fact, it's the headline right now on the homepage in the Financial Times that Europe... Um, needs to do more on China, according to Washington. Um, now, Europe, you know, implies a theater, and that theater implies this geography. To what extent is a new European security architecture more about global NATO thinking? Geography still matters. We are a transatlantic organization by definition. We say we are a Euro-Atlantic, transatlantic community, and will continue to be. But speaking of the new definition of security, many of the things affecting our security are non-geographical. They're global. Cyber, space, hybrid, supply chains, they're global. So we cannot ignore 
things that are affecting our security in this geography. And China is one of the big transformations of world affairs. And I think that we understand, and that's why our ministers will be discussing tomorrow, our leaders have discussed in Madrid, we'll continue to discuss how can we make sure that us, as allies of America in this part of the world and others, we can cope with the rise of China. We don't see China as a threat. It's a challenge. But I think we need each other more. Look at the 5G discussion a few years back. Sekjen mentioned this. Uh, I remember talking to our American friends, our EU friends, and many people said, listen, ah, what's the big problem with Huawei in our 5Gs? And all these things were across our national intelligence uh, communities and our Ministry of Defense and our bases for smart cities. So we have to defend ourselves and have resiliency. So I do believe there is a way, probably not always as fast. It's a big organization working by consensus. But I think we understand that the rise of China is an issue affecting our geography and our interests. And some of them are geographical, and they will stay like this. It's not a NATO, a global NATO per se. We'll not go in and ask uh, anyone or to accept membership from other geographies, no. But security is geographical and non-geographical, and I think NATO, we have in our DNA a permanent gene of adaptation to a changing world. That's what NATO is. And the, and, and the rise of China is one of the most significant transformation world affairs. NATO is not, would not be indifferent, and together our American allies will continue to go in that direction. Um, so, I mean, I know we've only got about four or five minutes left. I'm going to try and get two questions in. Uh, one is just a follow-up to that. The Biden administration recently made a very significant announcement on uh, depriving China of advanced semiconductors and things that would supply uh, China's AI um, development. Um, it was a unilateral decision, technically speaking, announcement, because it didn't involve European NATO partners and, and EU um, allies. Um, is that something you expect? And I know this is slightly beyond the purview of NATO, but as you've been arguing, NATO's got to think of things in many dimensions with this new European security architecture. Is this a level of cooperation you expect to see from, from across the Atlantic, from Europe, with the Biden administration? Speaking of Bali, uh, there was a meeting uh, between President Biden and President Xi. We are not suggesting here there will be a decoupling of the Chinese economy as a whole from the global economy or the American economy, European economy. This is, this is not possible. But we say that on strategic industries that affect our security, we have to be more prudent and more lucid. And microprocessors is one of those things that are affecting also defense sectors and security. AI misused can be a terrible weapon for techno-dictatorship. So we have to make sure, or rare earth, if we want to avoid the dependency on Russia, we have to make sure that we find alternatives, not in a moment. This doesn't mean there will not be business and trade with China, no. There are industries that have to continue to, to, to do this. There will be investments. Nobody says decoupling. We say more prudent on strategically related industries of high-end where the real competition is taking place. AI, quantum, microprocessors, rare earth. And this we have to be more prudent. And that's why it's not only the US taking this. I've, I've seen Germany taking a similar decision on semiconductors pretty soon. 
UK is taking similar decisions. Mm -hmm. South Korea and Japan are taking similar decisions. So um, we're not suggesting a, a total decoupling, just to be more prudent uh, on, on strategic industries that affect our national security. Okay, well, we began this conversation on the immediate environment in Ukraine. Let's end it on a longer-term um, perspective for Russia, for bringing Russia back in. Um, now, you mentioned, and, and Secretary General Stoltenberg mentioned, the importance of rule of law, of democracy, etc. Um, there is a difference, though, with NATO, uh, between NATO and the EU. The EU is explicit. You need to be a democracy to join the EU. NATO hasn't traditionally been that explicit. You know, one of the founding members was Portugal, Salazar's Portugal. Um, so I guess my question is, in a, in a, in a NATO with sort of a fairly diverse range of members like Turkey and Hungary, um, could we have some kind of invitation to Russia that, you know, you can rejoin us, but you don't need to be a perfect Nordic democracy after this war to rejoin us. You can be, you can be something in between. Is there something realistic that Russia can look forward to that will not involve permanent, permanently being outside the new European security architecture. I guess that's, that's my question. Listen, if you, look, if you look to the Washington Treaty, we are saying there very clearly that rule of law, uh, freedom, yeah. uh, and democracy is what this alliance is all about. We are also about values. And of course, nobody uh, has the same level of, of, uh, of, of, of societal uh, harmony like the Nordics. That's a different case. There are differences. But in no, in no way we are abandoning the idea that we are an alliance of democracies, uh, uh, loving freedom, and, and encouraging rule of law. There's no way around that. And Russia is... is, is they decided to basically divorce from civilized Europe. If they change course, I don't know if, when, and how, and they start becoming a predictable, uh, law-abiding, um, and come back to the international norm, because they have divorced not only from European uh, civilization, but also from international norms. UN Charter, OSC documents, NATO-Russia Founding Act, Europe, Council of Europe, everything, they, so it's up to Russia and to the Russian people whenever they decide that they want to come back to a normal relationship with civilized Europe and the world, it's up to them. But how can you expect an alliance like ours to engage with a country that is barbarically invading and killing on purpose innocent civilians, sexual abuse, child abuse, these are things that are just not tolerable to anyone. So we are, we are defending allies. We are supporting Ukraine. Uh, we are uh, uh, avoiding escalation. And because we have the uh, distinguished uh, Minister of Turkey, Mr. Shavosholo, thank you for being here. Also, we appreciate the efforts on the Green Deal and many things that happen because selectively uh, some form of discussion with Russia wouldn't be needed on strategic, mm -hmm. uh, on arms control, but it's up to Russia and its leadership to decide when and if, if they will decide to come back to become, again, a civilized nation, and then we'll see what will be the response from our side. Well, that seems like an appropriate note on which to end. Thank you so much for covering such a broad range of subjects. Mr. Thank you.